as I hope you do. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. The title today is From Smiles to Scowls, and I think that'll make sense as we go through. So we, we started the Gospel of Luke in the fall of 2013, and so we're picking back up, and we're going to be in it for um, right up to about Easter, and then we'll probably take a break again. We're just going to take time going through Luke. We're not trying to marathon it or trying to sprint through it. We're going to take it through in a marathon, and uh, so we're going to be back in it for a little bit, and then we'll take a break again and be in a few other places. If you remember, Luke wrote his Gospel, as well as the sequel, the book of Acts, Both these were written to a man named Theophilus, and in chapter 1, verse 4 of Luke, he tells us why he wrote, especially his gospel. And he says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you would have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Chapters 1 through 4, we're really setting up Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who the Old Testament has been talking about. Jesus, or Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the one who forgives sins, and he doesn't want us to have a purely factual knowledge, although we are to have a factual knowledge, but he wants that to, can be, he wants that to be combined with our affections so that it is a deep, convictional knowledge. And if you remember months ago, we used the, the analogy like an anvil. He wants our knowledge of Christ to be like an anvil, to be absolutely certain and unmoving. Today we're back in chapter 4, starting in verse 16, and he's, this is going to be where Jesus now begins his public ministry. We saw kind of the preparatory phase. Jesus was born, Jesus went through the wilderness, Jesus uh, was baptized and received the Holy Spirit, and now we're seeing him actually beginning to do teaching, him actually beginning to go and do miracles, and so that's kind of where we are right now. And this text is important, and I, I struggle at saying that because every text is important, But this text is important in the sense that Luke is using it as a representational text of the entire ministry of Jesus. This is the first passage that Luke has chosen to use for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So it's very important. Why did he choose this text? What is he trying to say? And when we look kind of at a a, a sky view of the book of Luke, we see that it really represents the entire ministry of Jesus. And so as we continue, let me just say one other thing. Last week, we were in Romans, remember? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, and it says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Remember that we said we we're worshipers of God. And so I just want to refresh something. What we just did as singing was presenting our bodies as sacrifices to God. That is one way we do that. Another way we do that is by listening to God's word. There's one way. This is a spiritual sacrifice at this moment. This is spiritual worship to God. Now, the verse 2 of Romans says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, what we're going to do right now is how the Spirit transforms our minds that we would be living sacrifices. I just want to tie that together. So this happens not only in this setting, but particularly in this setting, as we are now going into the Word of God, the Spirit will use the Word of God to renew our minds that we might know the will of God and that we might regularly continue giving our lives as sacrifices to God. 
I just want to tie that together as we're moving forward. The other thing I want to say is that uh, here at Timberline, I feel like God has, has been doing something, been doing something in my heart, and I want to encourage you, but also want to, I, want, I guess I, I want to encourage you in two ways. I want to encourage you that I believe God has been using you in mighty ways, and I want to encourage you to have a, a certain type of mindset. I've never come to a church, at least I do not ever remember coming to a church on a regular basis, and I mean church, gathering with the church, not a building, where I'm expectant. I mean, like, expecting, like, God's doing something. Like, I, I'm coming expecting. Like, I know God's going to do something with this text. I know God's going to do something in our lives this week as we go. I've never had that feeling. But regularly, like, coming and leaving as our time when we're gathered together, I'm like, I know God's going to do something today. And I know when I say, hey, send me an email, text me, let me know what God's going to do. Like, this part of me that, like, I do struggle with a little bit of faith there. Like, are they going to let me know? <laughs> Are you going to do something? And then all of a sudden, I get like texts from people like doing amazing things. And I'm like, God, you are so good. So I, I want you just, as we come to the Word of God, be expectant in your life. Just say, God, I, I want you to do something. My life is your sacrifice. Use me. And be expectant with this body that God is going to do something. I just want to encourage you that way. As we turn to chapter 4, one thing that we do is we stand at the reading of the Word. We do not do this for some ritualistic purpose. We don't do this for, I don't know, any weird reason. We do it because it's the Word of God. It's not like any other book, and He gave it to us. So we stand when we read to acknowledge that this Word comes from God. So if you'll please stand with me. If you get tired throughout the reading, feel free to sit. So this is not an endurance test, but it's simply one way we visibly show our love for God's word. Chapter 4, verse 16, going to verse 30. And he came to Nazareth, when he had been, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath and the, Lord, and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which, they were, on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. The word that you have divinely inspired men to write, and we believe is inerrant, is infallible. It comes with your full authority. God, we know that your spirit loves to work through your word. And so I pray that through the reading, and now as we walk back through this text, seeking its understanding, that you give us understanding, that you give us wisdom, that you transform our minds, that we would discern what is, what is your will. That we would not only logically better understand this text, but with our hearts, we would also fall greater in love with you as we do. And our affections would be raised. We would better understand you, the love you have for us, our love for you, our love for one another as believers, and that, God, we would better understand your mission and what you have called us to do also. God, we thank you for this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So sometimes we have blanks. There are no blanks. There's no nothing this week. So it doesn't mean don't listen or don't take notes, but somehow it just worked out that way. But we have a few headings we're going to stick to. Um, Jesus comes to his hometown. We see that in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. So Jesus had been preaching in the power of spirit all around Galilee, and now he comes home where he grew up. And Nazareth was nothing special. It probably had a population, they estimate around 400 people. And because there have never been found any streets, public structures, inscriptions, or fine pottery, they believe it's a pretty poor town. There wasn't much there. There wasn't anything much to look at. So this is a big day. This is a big day for Nazareth and possibly one filled with great expectation as Jesus arrives. They have heard stories of Jesus and his teachings and how people are glorifying him all around Galilee. And now he's coming home. The hometown hero is coming home. The one we've heard all about is coming home. And where else does Jesus go? But he goes straight to the synagogue, which is where he went, everywhere else when he was in in Galilee. And he comes there so he would teach. So we see Jesus is going to preach in his hometown. And the first part of that is in verses 17 through 21. And he's going, he's either given the scroll of Isaiah, he asks for the scroll of Isaiah, somehow he obtains the scroll of Isaiah, he turns exactly to Isaiah 61, which it wasn't with pages, it's the unrolling of a scroll. So in order to know where Isaiah 61 is, you had to know it pretty good. So he went straight there, and he reads verses 1 and 2 where we see the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So before we kind of go more into that, I just want us also to notice Jesus preaches because He's anointed by the Spirit. Like, don't miss this. There's been a strong connection ever since the beginning of Luke um, through this point that we see Jesus and the Spirit are together. It was through the Spirit that Jesus was born. Remember, the Spirit came upon Mary. It was through the, it was through the Spirit. It was the Spirit who's, who descended on him at the baptism. It was the Spirit who drove him into the wilderness where he'd be tempted by Satan. It was the Spirit who we see in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He's empowered by the Spirit to do ministry. And now, again, as we come into verse 
18, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading this text, applying it to himself, saying the Spirit is upon me. We also see that in reference to the Spirit in verse 18, he says, and he sent me, the Spirit has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I just don't want us to miss that Christ was empowered by the Spirit, and through the empowering of the Spirit, he was sent to go do ministry, and the, and, the, and the Spirit empowered him to proclaim good news to the poor. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see the Spirit will be with him, empowering him, and sending him. And it is the very same Spirit that you and I receive that we read about later in Acts, who comes and dwells upon us and sends the church out into the world that we would speak the gospel. We have said that we are family, missionary, and servant. We are missionaries. We proclaim the gospel. The reason we proclaim the gospel is because we have the exact same spirit that Christ has. And one of the major roles the spirit has in every single person is to send them that they would speak. And Jesus does that. And he does that perfectly. And we see he does that all the way throughout his ministry. And then he gives us the spirit that we would do the exact same thing. So let us not miss... He's doing this with the full empowerment of the Spirit. And we have the very same Spirit. And so by the Spirit, what is it that Jesus is now proclaiming? Well, we see at least five things. He's proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty, or the word also is forgiveness for captives, recovery of sight, liberty, or again, the word is forgiveness for those who are oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. So we have to be careful here when we come to Isaiah 61 at this quote because there are some who look at this text and they say Jesus came to bring about social transformation. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is all about making a better society. He's about making our lives better. And when we restrict the message to purely social gospel, we not only misunderstand Jesus' mission, but we will misunderstand the church's mission also. And we can see that today pretty clearly. The result is churches thinking their primary goal is to save the planet, end world hunger, provide clean water for those who don't have it, etc. Now don't get me wrong, providing food, providing clean water is, is excellent things. The church should be involved in those very things. We should be feeding the homeless, but that is not the primary mission. And that is not the primary mission of Jesus. Now, some have taken that to be, and therefore, they misunderstand Jesus' mission, and then they misunderstand the church. But Jesus' mission was not to feed the homeless. He came to address a much larger issue, sin. That's why he came. And that he'd proclaim the kingdom of God, that he has come, that we might be made right with God and live with God forever. So this text says much more than Jesus coming only to help alleviate the difficulties in our circumstances. After all, if we restrict these words to a very literal meaning, then when we come to the words he proclaimed liberty to the captives, we never have one instance we see Jesus setting prisoners free. We do not see him breaking jails down, ripping, ripping prisoners out, telling them, run for the hills. Like We don't have that. So the people don't want to say, this is, this is social transformation right here. This is what the church is all about. I'm not saying none of that's wrong to do. That's not the primary mission. And Jesus didn't do that either. We have no, no example at all in Scripture of him breaking down prison doors 
and setting prisoners free in a very literal sense that way. After all, John the Baptist was in prison. And do you remember? John the Baptist from prison sends messengers to Jesus. And he's like, are you really the Messiah? Because John's a little confused because he's in prison. And Jesus basically tells him, go back and tell him the things that you've seen. And then John dies in prison. It's not about social transformation. We are to be, as a church, meeting the needs in community. We are to feed the homeless. We are to do those things. That is not the primary mission. We do those things in order to accomplish the mission, which is proclaiming the name of Christ and making disciples who make disciples. But that is not the primary mission, and it was not the mission of Jesus. So I say that, I say it kind of strongly, because it's greatly misinterpreted today. And we can see churches, and especially kind of in this northwest area, you, you can see it pretty clearly. So what does Isaiah 61 mean? Well, the poor, they're ones who are not only material poor, but they're, they're humble. They're spiritually bankrupt. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus stands up and does the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and they know they need Jesus. We have captives, most likely referring to those who are in spiritual bondage. The blind are those who are blinded by sin. Throughout Scripture, we have the blind are those who are blinded by sin. It's throughout Paul's ministry is to go and tell those who are blinded by sin that, uh, and share the gospel with them that they might receive sight. The word oppressed means to be broken into pieces, to be shattered, to be crushed. It can refer to being crushed by a physical army. But here it's most likely associated with our condition because of sin. So we have poor, blind, oppressed, and imprisoned. And we're not only talking about purely physical needy, but we're talking about the spiritual needy. So when we look at all these terms as a whole, we see that Jesus is the one who comes to give hope. Jesus is the one who satisfies our most important needs, our spiritual needs. He comes for the needy. He comes for those who are spiritually bankrupt. He comes for those who know they need Jesus. He is our Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the one proclaiming the year of the Lord. Which the part that that Jesus didn't keep reading in Isaiah 61 is that the Messiah also comes to bring the day of vengeance, which is the very next line which he doesn't quote because that's going to come when he comes again when he brings judgment on those who have not believed in him. But at this moment, he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which is known as the Jubilee, meaning in Christ, he's saying there's great joy and great celebration. He's saying, I've come that you would have life. I've come for the needy, for the bankrupt, for the poor, for the hurt, for the crushed, for the shattered. And I've come to lift you up, to pick you up, to give you life, that you would have joy, ultimate joy that will not pass away. So by quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying he is bringing forth the restoration that the Jews have been waiting for for over 700 years. Because that's when Isaiah was written. So this is a massive text that the Jews have been waiting for, for years upon years upon years, to come to fruition. And now Jesus, he reads it, he puts the scroll back, and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a big day. Like... It's hard for us to understand this, 2,000 years removed. This is massive day for the Jews as they're listening to Isaiah 61. The year of the Jubilee is now being said. It is here in Christ, and it's fulfilled in him. Just imagine you're there. 
Imagine you've heard stories from your grandparents and which have come from their grandparents, and you've heard them from your parents, and they've been talking about Isaiah 61. One day there's a Savior that's going to come. One day there's a Messiah who's going to come. And he's going to reverse all of our circumstances. Now they're most likely thinking physical, because most of the Jews misunderstood it also. They're thinking physical, not spiritual. But they've been awaiting this day, saying, there's one who's coming, and he's coming. And when he comes, everything is going to be different. And so, like the kids, you know, they're hearing about this, they're hearing about this, and then they pass it on to their kids, and they're saying, when you see this day, this is going to be a great day. We're looking forward to this day. We're praying for this day. And now Jesus says, the day is here. This is massive. We're not looking forward to the day anymore. Jesus says, it's here. So how does the hometown crowd react We see in verse 22, all spoke well of him. Yeah, (laughs) he's got really good news. Again, they're thinking mainly physical. He's come to make us better. He's come to, to fix all of our problems. They marveled at his gracious words, we're told. They loved what they were hearing. And then they say, is not this Joseph's son? What does that mean? There's a lot of thoughts on that. Let me give you two plausible thoughts. First, you could realize, this is Joseph. He's the one from Nazareth. He's from here. I mean, if he did good things in Galilee, like the other places, in Capernaum and others, he's here in Nazareth, hometown. Imagine what we're going to get. Like, we're going to get the hometown benefits. A little extra favor. This is good news. I mean, this is the one from Joseph and Mary, and he's back. Let's have him do some stuff for us. They probably have a little sense of entitlement going. Like, man, if they got stuff, imagine what we're going to get. Oh, wow. I mean, you can see the eyes lighting up, and they're thinking, man, we're going to, like, Nazareth is going to have roads. (laughs) Or whatever, you know. They're going to have stuff like, we're going to make the history books, which they didn't. Second thought is maybe they're thinking, this is pretty good to hear. And we're pretty amazed. But didn't we watch you get grown up like just around the corner? And I mean, yeah, we never saw you get spanked or do anything wrong because you were that good kid. Um, but didn't we see him? And now he's the one? That all this is coming through? Maybe there's some doubt here. This is the one who Isaiah 61, I was at his birth. I mean, he cried. And, and you know, I mean, there, there's maybe a little bit of doubt going on. All right. We know you're the one from Joseph. Why don't you give us a little sign? You come with a good message. You got a good package. Now let's see some proof. I mean, that, that's pretty reasonable. At least to think that that's probably what they're thinking. So they want proof. You come, now prove it. So now we have Jesus kind of preaching again in his hometown in verses 23 to 27. And Jesus knowing they're expectant or possibly demanding signs. He does neither. He does neither. Now, again, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We would think at the beginning of a ministry, we're going to do whatever we can to gain the crowd and get the crowd and keep the crowd. Right? I mean, we don't want people leaving. This is the beginning. We need to get some support here. But Jesus doesn't 
He doesn't work on their terms. He doesn't give them signs. He gives them a proverb, and he gives them two stories from the Old Testament. Number one, a proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Most likely, this, this means do what you did elsewhere here. We heard you did some stuff. Now do it here. Do it here, and we'll believe you. Now, if you just remember, like if we fast forward about 18 chapters or so, 17, and we have Jesus on a cross, and the Pharisees are like, why don't you just now come down from the cross, and then we'll believe you. We saw you raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw you do all these amazing miracles, make the blind see, heal the, heal the lame, the paralyzed, but now why don't you do another one, and then we'll believe you. So if Jesus did a miracle, would that mean they would have believed in him? No. Because later, Capernaum, the one who they're all referring to, do the signs you did there, here. Jesus curses them and said, man, if the signs that were done here were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. He curses Capernaum, the one that they're saying, do what you did there. So let us not think that Jesus was unfair here. Let us not think that, man, why didn't he do a sign? Their problem is not that they need a sign. Their problem is they don't have faith. So they're saying, physician, heal yourself, prove yourself. We're your hometown. We deserve miracles. But Jesus says no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Foretelling of the rejection of him. And then he gives two stories. Story number one, Elijah saves Zarephath, a Gentile widow. Both these stories are about Gentiles. Now again, Jewish-Gentile relations, not pretty at this moment especially. I mean, massive amount of animosity between these. And again, I've said it before, makes the black-white issue here in America, it dwarfs that. And I'm not saying that's not massive and huge, but Gentile, uh, Jew, animosity, racial division there was huge. Not just centuries, but um, uh, not just, yeah, a couple centuries, but we're talking thousands of years of animosity built up here. Back in 1 Kings 17, all of Israel is suffering because of a famine. Elijah encounters a woman named Zarephath who is about to cook the last of her food. So she's cooking the last of her food. And it says she's going to cook it so that her son and her can then die. So there is no more help. Uh, hope is gone. They're going to eat and then they're going to die. Elijah says to the people who are going to cook their very last food, and he says, why don't you make me a cake real quick and then go ahead and make yourself something? So just get that. You have nothing. You have enough for your last food, for you, your son, and then you're going to die. And this guy walks over and says, hey, can I have some stuff too? So that, that's the context. And he says, God will make sure your flour and your oil do not run out. So what does she do? She believes that God will keep her flour and her oil, and she bakes them a cake, and they do not go hungry. Now remember, there's many widows in Israel who Elijah does not go to. He goes to the Gentile. Story two, we have Elisha heals Naaman, a Gentile commander, a Syrian commander who has gone to Israel and sacked them and attacked them, and he's even taken back a Jewish girl for his servant. So let us not think that Naaman is anyone that deserves something from Israel. He's the commander of the army, and he has leprosy. 
So the little girl that he has captured, his captive, his prisoner, says to Naaman's wife, you know, there's a prophet over in, in Israel and in Samaria. He could totally heal Naaman. This love of a girl who's been captured for her enemy. And so what does Naaman do? He heads off. He eventually comes to where Elisha is. Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He sends his servant and he says, why don't you go wash in the Jordan seven times and then you'll be clean. Now, Jordan is not a clean river. It's a dirty river. And, and this is not some noble task. I mean, we have a man, a powerful man, a commander, and he was wanting some miraculous thing or some noble act to do so that he'd be justified in receiving this, something that he could merit. And he's like, no, you just need to go do this. So he leaves angry. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And so his, his servant says, Naaman. He said, if you do this, you'll be clean. I do this. Naaman trusts that by washing in the Jordan River, God will heal him. And he does. So what do these two stories mean? Jesus is explaining who the poor, who the blind, who the captive, and who the oppressed are right now. He's explaining. Zarephath and Naaman experienced the blessings of God because they knew how desperate they were, and therefore they trusted God. They were broken and shattered people. She's got nothing, Zarephath does. She's going to die. She has no hope. Naaman has leprosy. His body will literally fall apart. They knew they were poor. They knew they were blind. They knew they were oppressed. They had no hope, and there was no way, there was no help for them. And neither one of them received a sign. Zarephath did not say, okay, Elijah, you want, you want, you want my flower? Why don't you do a little, little trick for me? Naaman didn't say, you know, if you're going to heal me, let's see a little, let's, let's see a little smoke. Let's see a little magic. Do something to prove. So when I go over there, this is actually going to work. No, they simply believed. They had heard the stories about the God of Israel, and they believed and that God, and that by trusting in him, he would provide and he would heal them. And so Jesus is saying to Nazareth, Jews, you are to be like the Gentile widow and the Gentile soldier. We do not come to Jesus on our terms. We come in their town. Tell them they need to have faith like Gentiles. Nowhere they're going to believe they're spiritually poor, blind, and oppressed people don't you come into my world, Jesus, telling me I have a sin problem. I mean, you can just imagine the hatred here. And so what happens? Hometown crowd now rejects Jesus. They've gone from smiles to scowls. Nazareth is now angry. They're filled with wrath. Verse 22, they're amazed. They're filled with joy. He's got glorious, gracious words. And now they take him up to the hill where they're going to throw him down. They're going to kill him. And in verse 28, we see they're filled with wrath. And then we see Jesus passes through their midst. I just want you to think through that real quick. Let's say we pick someone in here. And we're going to throw them off a hill. Or or, or we're going to throw them through one of these doors. I'm pretty sure they're not getting out. I mean, there's enough of us that we could handle one person here. We got some military people in here. Like, they know moves that, you know... Some of us don't know. They could do things. Nobody's getting out of here. And Jesus just walks out. Like, there's no explanation given. But 
Luke leaves us like this just so we're like, what? Like, how? And he just goes on. Just Okay, verse 31 now, or chapter 5 now, he just moves on. Verse 31. We find maybe a little bit more evidence in John when John uses phrases like his hour had not yet come. Jesus was going to die at the cross and nobody was going to take his life until the day was determined that it would happen. Nazareth was not going to do anything to Jesus at this point. So he passes through their midst. Again, Luke is just saying he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. Now remember, This story reflects the entire ministry of Jesus. There was times people loved Jesus. There are times people hated Jesus. There are those who received his message, who came broken and poor and shattered, and there are those who rejected his message and ultimately crucified him. When Jesus fed the 5,000, remember, they're like, let's make this guy king. He's amazing. Jesus then gives them a few teachings the next day, and they're like, we don't want anything with this guy, and they all leave him. Jesus, when he walks into Jerusalem, everyone's like, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, this is a big day. Here comes Jesus throwing down palm branches and coats. And then a week later, they nail him to a cross. This is the ministry of Jesus here. Accepted at one moment, rejected by other. Accepted by the shattered and broken, rejected by the proud and religious elite. Many are going to hear the gospel. It is only the poor, it is only the blind, the captive and oppressed that will actually experience God's grace. The question is, are we poor? Are we blind? Are we oppressed? Are we captive to sin? If you answer no, then you have not tasted the grace of God. You have not tasted the grace of God until the point where you say, I am broken and i have absolutely no hope no help there is nothing this world offers that can help me you will not be saved because you have jewish genealogy you will not be saved because you share jesus's hometown you will not be saved because you live in jesus's hometown you will not be saved because you have money you will not be saved because you attended Um, church. You will not be saved because you live a respectable life. You will not be saved because you put money in the offering. You will not be saved because of what you have done or anything else you will ever do. All the things, all those things can easily be perverted by sin and fill us with pride. And we can think, I am not spiritually bankrupt. I am not oppressed by sin. I want you to think of the rich young ruler Fast forward all the way up to Luke 18. We're told a rich young man comes to see Jesus. And he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus you know, says, well, uh, you know, have you kept the law? And, and, the, and the guy's like, I've kept all the laws. I really am. Law-abiding citizen. I've done it all. And Jesus then says, you still lack one thing. Go sell everything that you have. Distribute it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And then the man turns away very sad. And we're told it is because he is very rich, he turns away. The rich man knew Scripture. He knew God's Word. He was blinded to his need of God, though. He loved his riches so much more. He loved what he had accomplished. He loved his money. He loved the fact that he kept the law. And therefore, he was totally blinded by sin 
And hear this, possessions do blind us to sin. Worldly recognition can blind us to sin. Our good deeds can blind us to sin. Our religiosity can blind us to sin. And listen, if you've grown up in church, I urge you to especially examine your heart. I've rebaptized many people who got saved at an early age only to years later, upon reading God's Word and through the power of the Spirit, realize I was never saved at that age. I urge you, especially if you grew up in church, it is easy to be blinded by religion. It is easy to be, be blinded by the fact that you've lived a sociably acceptable life. When we look at the New Testament, it is the Pharisees who Jesus gives the harshest words to. They were the ones who grew up memorizing the entire Old Testament scripture. Now just think about that. How many texts you have memorized? And if we said something high, let's say we have a hundred verses memorized. You know, maybe that's the most someone has in here. Maybe we can go up to two hundred verses. They had the entire Old Testament memorized, but their knowledge was not combined with faith. So rather than humbling them, it made them proud. It filled them with pride, and they saw themselves as something special. They believed God owed them salvation. They looked down on others, and they were anything but poor and oppressed. You know, you've seen religious people that way. You've seen people in church like that. Salvation does not become, does not come because of knowledge alone. It does not come from peer pressure. There are people that are like, man, when they got up, I got up. They walked the aisle, I walked the aisle. I'm like a good idea. Does not come from peer pressure. Does not come from persuasive words from a pastor. Or because of some emotional feeling during music. Salvation comes by God's grace upon those who know they are nothing without Him. Salvation comes by God's grace upon those who know they are nothing without Him. The question is, do you know you're nothing without Jesus? Do you know? Your scriptural knowledge is nothing if it's not combined with faith. Your socially good-looking life is nothing without Jesus. There was a, a testim- or a, an interview with some of the Seahawk uh, football players who are Christians, and it was before the Super Bowl. And it was cool because they said, look, win or lose the Super Bowl, Jesus is better than the Super Bowl. And they're just like adamant about that. They're like, you know, we want to win it, and the Super Bowl would be great, but nothing is greater than Christ. And you can only say that when you know you are nothing without Christ. And Christ is your life. Do you know that apart from grace of Jesus, every person will stand condemned and sentenced to an eternity in hell? Apart from grace in Jesus. Do you know that God has sent His Son, Jesus, so that by dying on a cross, we'd be saved, forgiven of our sin, adopted in His family, and given eternal life with Him? Do you know that? There are so many things that blind us. There are so many things that make us think more of ourselves. And Satan loves that. He wants us to be filled with houses and riches and cars and money and all the electronic gizmos and gadgets we need so that we won't think we need Christ. In a very large church in Britain, a pastor one day saw a former burglar kneeling down before a judge. And the judge was the Supreme Court of England. And this particular judge is the one who had previously sentenced the burglar to seven years in jail. Now they're kneeling together beside one another in a building. 
And after the service, or the, the, the burglar had come to know Christ. He was now a Christian. And after the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor. And he turns to the pastor and says, Did you see who's kneeling next to me today? And the two kept walking on for a few more moments. And the, and the judge says, What? What an amazing miracle of grace. And the pastor nod, nods in agreement. It's like a marvelous miracle indeed. And so they keep walking. The judge then turns back and says, But wait, whom are you referring to? And the, and the pastor, of course, says, the former convict, of course. And the judge says, I was not referring to him at all. And the pastor looks at him. He's like, what do you mean? He says, I, I'm referring to myself. You see, the judge went on. It's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing. He has a history of crime behind him, and when he understood Jesus could be his Savior, he knew that there was actually hope, that there was help, that there was life in Jesus. There was joy in Jesus. He knew how much he needed that help. He says, but you look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to to live as a gentleman, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained degrees. I was called to the bar, eventually became a judge. I was sure that I was all I needed to be. Though, in fact, I too was a sinner. He turns, he says, Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. Now, we don't think that, though. Because I've heard you, and I say that generally, and I've been there too, where we hear someone's testimony. Someone stands up and before people and says, man, God saved me from a life of drugs and, and you know, drinking and prostitution and all of these things. And we just sit there, oh my goodness, wow. God's grace. And then the next person comes up. is like, man, I, I don't really feel like I should give my testimony. I kind of grew up in church. <laughs> you know, I was with a bunch of Christians all the time and I just kind of knew what to do. Which one's the greater miracle? The guy that knew he had absolutely nothing. And so when he heard the gospel, he was like, that is life. Or the person who had a whole history of life going, why would I need anything? I'm a good person. Socially acceptable. I have money. I have riches. I have things. People look up to me. I'm respected in church. Why ever would I need Jesus? I'm not trying to say that one actually needs God's grace more than the other. So don't miss interpret that. I want us to see, just like those in Nazareth, we can act also because of religion, because of how we grew up, we can, we can be blinded to Christ. We cannot understand that we are spiritually bankrupt, poor, oppressed, captive, and blind without Him. And it's only in Him do we have life. It's only in Him are we saved. It's only in Christ do we have the year of Jubilee which refers to forever because the year is being contrasted with the day of vengeance. Moment of vengeance, a forever of jubilee. As we close, I want want to pray in three ways. And I want to give you time to pray, and then I'll pray. But these are the three areas I want us to pray. First, I want us to pray for ourselves. I want us to confess our pride. So as we sit here, I want us to take a moment of silence. I want you to confess pride. Let's confess where there are areas in our life that we often um, give more worth to than we give worth to Jesus. Let us confess that we are poor, blind, 
and let us confess our sin for not thinking that we are. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you've come to church for a really long time, and maybe you think you're saved, and today you're going, wow, I've actually never thought I was poor without Jesus. If that is you, confess your sin and come to know Christ today as your everything. And let us praise God that he sent his son so that it would be given all the riches in heaven through Jesus. So I want us to pray for ourselves. Number two, I want us to pray for our mission context. Let me just define what I mean by that. I mean the unbelievers God has placed around us at work, your neighborhood, like your neighbors, wherever you are, the unbelievers that are around you. The only way they will come to faith is if they understand they are spiritually poor. That's how they will come, is if they know that they are spiritually poor. They must know they are spiritually bankrupt before God. So let's pray God uses us to love on them, to serve them with physical needs even, that we might then meet their spiritual needs and tell them how much Jesus loves them. Let us pray that way. And then let us pray third for our mission. Because our mission is to go make disciples who make disciples. And one way we do that is by serving the needy. And we should be very aware of who are the poor, broken, blind, shattered, crushed people in our society are. And we should go to them. We should go to them because they will be very open for the gospel. And so let us go. And most likely we will have to meet their physical needs first. Showing that we actually do love them. Showing that we actually do care for them. And let us do that. Let us position ourselves around the broken in our society. And the ones who are visibly broken in our society. That we might then share the gospel with them. And they might see that Jesus is hope. He is life. He is the year of Jubilee. So I want to give us a moment. So I just want to encourage you. Just bow your head and ask that God would now through his word, transform our minds. We would think more like he does. And that our bodies would be his living sacrifice. And let's just pray over these three areas, and then I'll close, and we'll, Mike will come back up and lead us in music to God.